City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. And I don't know about you, but every day my mailbox has had pretty much a phone book's worth of ads for politicians coming in week after week. And I think our mailmen, from carrying all of this around, I think they're getting, they're getting quite fit because they have to carry 17 different pamphlets to every house as they make their rounds around the neighborhood. It is a huge bag that they have to carry. And as we've gotten all these political announcements, all of these campaign ads, I have been upset about something. Not one of the candidates has promised to defend my Third Amendment rights. How about you? Aren't you upset about that? Aren't you upset about your Third Amendment rights being violated or not? See, most of you, even the history teachers and lawyers, are sort of doing the calculation in your mind, wait a minute, what even is the Third Amendment? (laughs) We're very familiar with the First Amendment. We know all about the Second Amendment. We argue about it. The Fifth Amendment, we've heard several times and all those things. But the Third Amendment... Anybody know? Can anybody take a guess what the Third Amendment is? The Third Amendment says that at no time shall the government quarter troops in your house. All right. It's good. We, we don't talk about the Third Amendment because pretty much since the 1800s, it has been irrelevant. And so we don't talk about it, and it is absolutely obscure, and so we ignore it. So most of us could probably tell you probably five of the ten Bill of Rights amendments, but one of the ones that very few of us would be able to call to mind would be that we do not have to quarter troops in our home. And so the Third Amendment gets largely ignored. So there's something that's true about the Bible as well, which is this, that just like we ignore the Third Amendment because it's sort of obscure and unimportant, All of the sort of smaller books of the Bible, we tend to skip right over, right? First, or second John, third John, Jude, Obadiah. Not very often do we sort of walk through and say, yes, let's do sermons on Jude and third John. They are sort of the ignored portions of our Bible. And so over the next few weeks, what I want to do is help us remedy that. I want to look at all of the small books of the Bible. This is also convenient because it's just a few weeks until Advent. No sense in starting something new and then setting it down for Advent. Instead, what we'll do is week by week, take a look at some of the single chapter books of the Bible. We're going to start with the second and third letters that the Apostle John wrote. The Apostle John uh, was the disciple who Jesus loved. He was one of Jesus' closest friends when he was here on earth. Uh, He was one of Jesus' closest confidants. He was the one who uh, laid on Jesus' shoulder during the Last Supper. He's one of the three men that, that Jesus took up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He was absolutely one of Jesus' closest friends. And not only that, but he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation, and he wrote three letters to different churches. Sometime after the the New Testament sort of story and Acts ends 
it seems that John became the pastor of the church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. And so this church in Ephesus was a large church in the city, but there were all sorts of smaller churches in the towns and hamlets around Ephesus. And so John not only served as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, but also the sort of de facto pastor of these smaller church that was all around. And so John, the disciple who Jesus loved, writes this letter to one of the churches. And so I'd like you to stand together as I read the entire letter that John wrote. The Elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching Do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So John writes this very short letter, uh, 256 words in the original language, a very sort of short note to a church. And as he writes this note, as you heard it, I think a couple of things sort of stand out in this letter, which is that what Paul, or I'm sorry, John is talking about again and again are these two concepts, one of truth and the other of love. And he is sort of instructing the church on what truth and love mean. But not just instructing them on what truth and love mean, but also fighting something that's going on. It seems that uh, in the churches around Ephesus, uh, a heresy, uh, a wrong idea about who God is began to come up. And this idea of who God is that was wrong, that John was warning them against, was people were saying that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Now, for some of us, we sort of hear this and go, wait, huh, what? But as we read this, as we think about this, this is a big deal. Because there were two big heresies that John is fighting against, that grew up in the early church. The first of these heresies, the first of these wrong ideas, 
was that of Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that Jesus that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh because all flesh is bad. And if all flesh is bad and Jesus is good, therefore, what? You can't have Jesus in the flesh. You can't mix those together. So they said that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. And the sort of side-by-side sister of that was the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. Jesus looked like a human. He may have even smelled like a human, but he wasn't really a human. And John says, no, church, this is dangerous. When you begin to believe that Jesus wasn't truly human, you are walking down a road that is not just dangerous to you, but it's dangerous to others around you. And so he writes this stern warning, and even goes so far as to say that you shouldn't invite these people into your house. Now, in order for this to sort of make sense, we have to think through the idea that one of the things that the Christian church was built on was hospitality. That hospitality in the church of the New Testament wasn't a thing that was optional. It was absolutely a part of what it meant to be a Christian. Showing hospitality, having people in and around your home was a part of it. And not only that, The idea of a church building didn't exist. The idea of having a space that was just the churches didn't exist in the New Testament. So where did they have church? They had church in large homes. So when John says, don't invite them into your house, he's not saying, don't have a conversation with somebody. Don't have anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus over to your house. No, what he's saying is, don't let these people into your church and give them a platform. He's saying, hey, Church, there are people who have wrong ideas about who Jesus is. Don't let them preach at your church. Don't let them give an update on how good it is to be spreading heresy in the towns around Ephesus. This is not good. This is detrimental. And so he goes through and gives that command not to do it. Now, it would be easy for us to get lost in the weeds of Gnosticism and Docetism and all these sort of heresies that are going on here. But if we do that, I think we miss the bigger point of what John is going after in this book. We get into those details and we miss what John is trying to teach us. And what John is trying to teach us through this letter is that we have a strong tendency to sacrifice truth in the name of love. And, or, sacrifice love in the name of truth. We are very quick to be all about the truth and not so much with love. Or, all about love and let's not worry about the truth. All of you in your lives have a tendency towards one of these or the other. All of you in your relationships have a tendency to err on the side of truth or err on the side of love. Let's think through this. So the first one, how would we prioritize truth over love? I'm reminded of a scene in a movie where there was a a fairly abrasive character and he was in in an argument with his friend. And he kept shouting at his friend, Am I wrong? Am I wrong? 
Am I wrong? Show me where I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? And finally, the friend says, no, Walter, you're not wrong. You're just a jerk. You're just, no, you're not wrong. You're just, and how many of us fall into that category of wanting so deeply to be right? Wanting so deeply to be right that we don't care how that affects anyone else. How often do we excuse being a jerk to someone else with the phrase, well, I'm just being honest. Right? Now, this is not as true here in uh, St. Petersburg, but when I lived in South Carolina, they even had a phrase that could dismiss, sort of say, it doesn't matter what I just said, but it's the truth, which is, bless your heart. Right? <laughs> Wow, didn't have any time to put on makeup this morning, bless your heart. <laughs> right? And oof. Right? And they could they would say anything they wanted, they'd punctuate it with bless their heart, and it didn't matter. This is prioritizing truth over love. This is a problem that those of us who have grown up in the church that have been Christians for a while tend to have, isn't it? We are very quick to nitpick others. We are very quick to take apart everything they said. Did, did they say that wrong? Did they have the wrong tone when they came with that? And I'm very quick to not give anyone else the benefit of the doubt. We oftentimes, if this is our flaw, prioritize rules over love. I don't have to love you. You didn't do this, this, and this. We prioritize truth, and we sort of say that love comes later. We insist on getting our own way. We are inflexible. Some of you struggle with this in your relationships. Think about the, think about the times where you and your significant other, or you and a friend are trying to work out something, and how many times are you absolutely inflexible? No, this is the way that it is. Doesn't matter how much I love you, we are not going to Carabas ever again. Now that's, that's a stupid illustration, because as chains go, Carabas isn't the worst. But how many times do our hearts reach for inflexibility? Reach for the truth of a situation, and it doesn't matter. Love cannot overcome that to us. Here I stand, no one will move me. Or what about shunning other people who don't have the same standard of righteousness that we do? In the church, we can tend to do this. If they don't have the same set of problems that I do, if their sins look different or worse than mine, they need to, they need to stay away. They need to be apart because my sins are the good sins and my sins are just little flaws and those people are the bad people. We prioritize truth over love. We judge others for issues based of conscience. 
How willing are you this Tuesday to break bread and take communion with somebody who votes differently than you in the election? How willing are you to love and say that your Christian brother who you take out of the same loaf and drink from the same cup and worship the same Jesus as, what happens when they vote differently than you? Applies to every side of the situation. That impulse in us is the impulse to prioritize truth over love. The same thing happens in our entertainment choices, in our social behaviors. We take and we build up and we say, this is the truth, and if you don't do the truth, you don't get the love. You do this in your relationships. These are the rules of being in a relationship with me. If you don't do them, you don't get love. The problem is that that's not love, is it? That if I'm telling you all of the standards that I have, am I loving you? No, I'm not. And yet this passage, this letter, John again and again emphasizes what? That we are commanded, that we were commanded from the very beginning to love one another. We are commanded from the outset, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, to love. But what happens What happens in your heart and mind? Oftentimes, the pendulum swings to the far other side. Because just like it's wrong to prioritize truth over love, it is wrong to prioritize love over truth. How many of you absolutely will not tell someone else when they have hurt you? And we'll keep that in and bury that real nice because you don't want to create the conflict that comes along with telling somebody that. Many of us do this. We are like we are like the, the frog sipping his cup of coffee while his room is on fire saying, this is fine. This is fine. This is not a problem. We are unwilling to look around us and see that things are bad. We are unwilling to say that things are bad. We are quick to say, this is fine. I can take this. And yet, this is, I think, even more. While, while on the one hand, those of us who have grown up in the church struggle with prioritizing truth over love. I think as a culture, we often prioritize love over truth. How many times have you been talking to somebody? I, this happened uh, to Angie just this week, or last week. She was talking to some friends, and, and the friends were talking about what they would do if their husband cheated on them. Or what would they do if they cheated on their husband? And Angie said, I would talk to you about it. And one of her friends said, why? That's none of your business. But marriage is not just about what I want marriage to be. I don't get to write the rules of marriage. I stand in front of God and in front of people and make vows. Even even if you don't have a high view of the Christian view of marriage, it is still a vowed thing. 
And so Angie said, rightfully, no, this is something that you vowed in front of God and witnesses. This is why it is not just, I can't marry somebody without witnesses. Why? Because this isn't just about you and your view of marriage. There is more to it than that. But we as a culture have said, you know what? Who, who knows what the truth is? Who knows what that is? And so, you know what? My view of marriage is fine, and your view of marriage, it's different than mine, but that's okay too, and yours, that's, that's fine. Every, everything is fine. This is fine. Everything is fine. You know what's interesting? Is we won't tell somebody the truth when they're hurting themselves because we don't want to offend them. I dealt with this just the other night. My son was playing a video game, and I said, son, you need to go take a shower. He said, but I don't want to take a shower. I said, but you're going to take a shower. But I want to play video games. But you're going to take a shower. And so he proceeds as a, a young preteen to try to reason with me whether or not he should be taking a shower. And it got to the point where I was like, no, I'm the dad, you're the child, stand up, go that way, and get in the shower. Right? And he's like, oh, but I don't get to, but I want to, but I don't get to. And like, and it was like I was this evil despot. Right? I was this horrible dictator who was just the asking the absolute unreasonable thing of you need to take a shower. Now look, given the choice between taking a shower and playing video games, I get why he would rather play video games, right? Most of the time, I would probably be in the same boat as him. But what I know that he doesn't know is this, that he is growing older, that his body is changing and he smells worse than he used to. <laughs> right? And not only, not only that, but he is at the age where socialization and social characteristics are getting locked in. And so if he doesn't take a shower, not only will he smell bad, but also he will be smelly kid. <laughs> and I don't want him to be smelly kid. So, so what I'm asking him to do is really actually good for him. Is really long term good for him. But he can't see that. He can't imagine that. But I have to tell him the truth. Which is, you have to go take a shower. Even if it offends you. You have to do it. And our culture... We are unwilling to tell anyone else the truth, even when they are hurting themselves. Even when what they're doing is harmful to themselves, we sort of go, mm, not my circus, not my monkeys, right? Not my problem. I want to look away, right? We see, we see something bad happening, and how quick are we to go, mm, 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 right? We don't want to engage it. Now, here's the problem with that. So many of us 
struggle to have meaningful relationships. We have lots of friends, we have lots of acquaintances, but we don't have meaningful relationships. Our relationships are broad and shallow. And we put our head on our pillow at night. And we wonder why our lives are like this. Why are our relationships so shallow? Why, are, why, don't, why don't I have any of those deep friendships? And the reason is because we are unwilling to tell the truth to one another. I'm unwilling to put our friendship at risk in order to tell you the truth. Because I would rather prioritize love over truth. You know, it's interesting when we talk about relationships, whether those, they're friendships or whether they're romantic relationships, what do you call that first part of the relationship? Right? That first part of the relationship is the honeymoon period. You know what another word for the honeymoon period is? You know what another way to describe that is? The time before anybody has told the other person the actual truth. <laughs> right? Look, the reason why those times seem so good is because that relationship is costing you nothing at that point because you haven't told the truth to one another. And then what happens in a relationship? Friend, romantic, any sort of relationship when you break the ice and tell the truth to the other person? Most of the time, there is sort of a bit of shock and awe as you engage in your first fight. We prioritize love over the truth. And this is the same thing that was happening in the place where John was writing. Look, we love them. You know, yeah, sure. So they're teaching everybody in our church a view of Jesus that is absolutely not true, but all in love, right? Love, love wins. This is fine. Everything is fine doesn't matter. It's interesting that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who talks about the end times, says, do you want to know what way to describe those who prioritize love over truth? He says that they are anti-Christ. And so what we have are these two extremes. The extreme of love being prioritized over truth and the extreme of truth being prioritized over love. What John says is, whenever you put one higher in the ranking of the other, you're creating a false dilemma. You're creating a false dichotomy. Because love and truth are united together in one person. That is Jesus. John himself wrote, when Jesus came and started his ministry, he was full of grace or love and truth. Jesus is the place where truth and love meet. This quote um, from a a book on marriage by Tim Keller, uh, it sums it up well. Truth without love is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, 
but in such a way that we can't really hear it. But God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling and rest more and more in God's mercy and grace. You see, Jesus does not shy away from telling us who we are. Jesus tells us, you are broken, you are messed up, you are sinners who have fallen short of my perfect standard. But also, even though I know that, even though I know the depths of your sin better than you know it itself, I still love you. And I still love you enough to die for you. You see, the cross is where truth and love meet. The cross is where we see the truth, the honesty about our sinfulness, the honesty about what's wrong with us, met with the absolute love of Jesus, preemptively, going first. You see, what John talks about when he talks about love isn't emotion. It isn't a feeling. It isn't that idea, that warm feeling you get when that person who you love is around. No, to John, love is self-sacrifice for someone else who doesn't deserve it and who can never pay it back. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus shows to us. It is self-sacrificial and we didn't deserve it and we could never pay it back. And so Christian love in our lives is full of that truth. It's interesting that the best way to illustrate this, as we've sort of alluded to and bumped up to again and again and again, is the illustration of marriage. And when we talk about marriage, marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant because it is a place where this truth and this love meet in one. And not only that, but we, City Church, are a covenant community. We are bound to one another. And while our building may change, while the the place that we worship and things like that may change, what connects us is more. Is this covenant love we have for one another. Is this covenant love for our children so that we can't see one of the kids running running through the sound equipment and go, glad that's not mine. Glad that's somebody else's problem. Tough beans, the pastor's kids are all your problem. (laughs) And your kids are all my problem. And all of our kids are are the problem of the grandparents who don't even have grandkids here. Why? Because the church is marked by true covenantal truth and covenantal love found in Jesus himself. 
And so as we look to the cross, as we look to the cross and see it telling the truth about who we are, as we look to the cross and seeing it showing the love of God poured out on us, for some of us what this means is we gain the confidence to tell the truth. The confidence to tell the truth to someone who we're in a relationship with. We have that confidence, not because we woke up this morning and are better, but because we remember that the gospel tells us that we are already accepted. That all the acceptance we need, we have already found in Jesus. And so I can take that risk of telling someone the truth in love. For others of us, it's not confidence that we need, but compassion for others. It's to set down the gloves of our self-righteousness and see that I am broken and messed up like you are. And so, for some of us, the gospel reminds us that we need to be more truthful. We need to be more confident because we are already accepted in Jesus. For others of us, we need to be reminded that we're more broken and sinful than we want to admit. We need the truth applied to our own hearts so that we are compassionate towards others. City Church, as John called his church, as I call you now, elect lady in Jesus. May God grow us in truth and love, braided together in the beauty of the gospel as we live out our lives together. Let's pray.